The very first episode of the Standard Age podcast explored a brick-and-mortar business within the independent watch and fine jewelry world. Today's guest is also in the world of watches, primarily focused on servicing those interested in collecting vintage timepieces. Eric Wind, owner of Wind Vintage, operates a website displaying many of his watches. However, I feel the sweet spot for Eric is his personal relationships with collectors. He's been in the watch game for a while now, namely having cut his teeth as a writer and contributor to Hodinkee. I sat down with Eric while in New York City this past June to discuss everything from writing speeches for Angelina Jolie to now selling watches that cost six figures. We talk about golf, as well as some cars, namely Porsche, and how they may just parallel the watch market and vice versa. It seems many of you are watch fans here, and this conversation really gets into the nitty-gritty of the process behind buying a vintage timepiece from one of the more reputable vintage watch dealers today. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on, Wesley. Yeah, this is awesome to, to meet up here in New York City and uh, spend some time. It's awesome. I'm excited for what you're doing. Oh, well, thanks. Um, so usually I like to start with kind of where people grew up, for example. Can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that? I'm from Manitowoc, Wisconsin, a small town just a little south of Green Bay on Lake Michigan, just north of Whistling Straits Golf Course and Black Wolf Run. Nice. Um, and Manitowoc is a little infamous because it's the scene of a, a popular Netflix documentary called Making a Murder. Oh, right. That took place in my town. Um, but uh, it's a great town. I lived there my whole life until I went off to college and went to Georgetown in D.C. Did you go to the U.S. Open? I went. I didn't make it to the U.S. Open at Aaron Hills, but I went to the PGA Championship uh, when I was it? in high Whistling school. Straits? Whistling Straits, yeah, oh, 2004. Awesome. VJ yeah. Singh. One. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. 2004. Yeah, it's a blast from the past for sure. Yeah. What? Um, so what was childhood like? Do you have siblings? I have an older sister. Um, she's still in Wisconsin? She's in California now. She's a realtor. Um, and my parents are still in Manitowoc. Oh, cool. Um, uh, I grew up sort of quintessential small town America. Very safe, very nice place. Great schools and... Uh, really a lot of cheese, obviously. <laughs> uh, and I, yeah. I grew up, I uh, worked at a golf course, uh, so that I had really fond memories of the summer evenings, uh, hitting balls and working the course and all that. What that did you fun. do there? Yeah, everything from washing the clubs of, of uh, members. It was a small country club, uh, or, um, you know, going and putting water in the in the, the jugs, the jugs at the various holes, and yeah. taking care of bee nests or other things that are around. Wow. <laughs> it was a really array of odd jobs, uh, wasp nests, etc. Oh <laughs> so wow, it was good. Yeah, the whole outdoor nature thing yeah. getting in the way of we playing. Had a little, a little pro shop, so a few clubs and golf balls and shirts for sale, etc. Helping with all that. Sure. So a little <laughs> retail action. Yeah, it was nice. good. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. So what did your mom and dad do? My mom was a photographer, retired. She does some photos occasionally, but a uh, wedding photographer. So almost every Saturday she was off helping do, you know, photograph a wedding somewhere. 
doing that. That was, that was hard work, particularly in hot summer days. Oh yeah. Uh, she also did professional photographs for the, for our local hospital or other professionals. Um, and then my father uh, was an optometrist. He's also retired. And, um, so he was checking my eyes every year growing up and yeah, great, great man and great mom as well. So That's awesome. Yeah. So where'd you go to undergrad? Went to Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Sure. I studied international politics um, and really enjoyed it. Did you apply anywhere else or do you always want to go to That D. was C. my top choice. Yeah. I applied elsewhere, uh, but I was really happy to go to Georgetown oh, and yeah. thrilled because it's a D.C. is a great place to go to school. I had a lot of great internships and oh, sweet. learned a lot. I think you get really broad exposure to things. So yeah, fun. it's diverse too. Yeah, great it's city. pretty concentrated yeah. as well. Yeah, it's great. what uh, what kind of internships were you doing? I worked for my representative from Wisconsin oh, um, nice. for about a year, from one summer through the school year, and then I also worked for a think tank briefly, a foreign policy think tank, um, and then I worked for the Department of Defense, uh, which was very interesting, um, and. I thought I kind of wanted to do that work, uh, but I decided that it wasn't really for me, and I wanted to go into the private sector, uh, right. at least initially right out of college. Sure. Now, you went to Oxford, right? Yeah, so I worked in D.C. for a consulting firm for a couple of years. Okay. Um, we had a lot of interesting clients, including Angelina Jolie. I wrote, uh, I helped write a speech for her, op-eds, et cetera. Uh, oh, Wow which was very interesting. We helped with different celebrities managing their sort of philanthropic endeavors, like Cher supports a school in um, Kenya. So we helped with that. So it's uh, almost like a PR consultancy? It wasn't just PR. It was really like their charitable endeavors, making sure they're run effectively and properly, getting them all set up if they're just interested in something to kind of managing it. Um, We helped with... Brad Pitt's Make It Right, which was helping rebuild the Ninth Ward in New Orleans, um, and then could kind of help them interface with the U.S. government or the United Nations for trips or things like that that are relevant to. Um, so that was really, really a great job to have right out of college. Uh, pretty unbelievable <laughs> exposure. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> but I realized during that time I hadn't really done any business courses and didn't have a lot of business background. I had economics courses in college, but um, not like really more how to run a business or how that world works. So I thought an MBA would be very useful. I had always wanted to go to Oxford as well, I guess, since I was young and first heard about it. So uh, um, I applied. My wife and I had just kind of met and then got married uh, and then a couple months later, we moved to England, and uh, wow, uh, it was a fun way to spend our first year of marriage. Yeah, and a new environment, new people, and it was a, it was a very intense program because it's one year and you're packing a lot in. But it was I learned a ton and so enjoyed it's twice it. the work because usually it's a two year program, right? Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> concentrated down. So the holy smokes, yeah, it was good. Yeah, that's super intense. So what were some of the first jobs out of Oxford then? Did you work in England or did you immediately come back? I, yeah, I came back. It's not the easiest, I would say, for an American to get a job over there because of all the work issues. um, The 
job I got was in Florida with a biofuel company called Titan. Um, and that company has sort of two technologies. One that was about how to extract sugars or things from, from plants, from sort of recycled products to make biofuel because you take the sugar and you ferment it into ethanol. But um, the other part was they created a high sugar tobacco that was ideal for growing on less than ideal soil. You know, oh, so interesting. in North Carolina, I think in Virginia. And that f- industry, the biofuel industry, is under a lot of pressure because of low oil prices. Um, so they've sort of sh- shifted focus, and now they're more in recycling things like polyester and other clothing materials. And they're just about to announce a big investment from a pretty famous company, et cetera, working with a number of famous companies now uh so they've sort of shifted away from biofuel to this other recyclables for for fashion and things uh, so what year was this that you were that working with them? i worked there 2013 to 15 oh wow um, okay but i guess i should preface that sort of in the background all from 2010 a year after i graduated from college through then i had been writing for hodinkee which in 2010 hardly anyone had heard of was it's uh, sort of a year and a half into its existence. And I had stumbled across it and really fell in love with vintage watches and began writing for them around the time Penn was going to start his graduate school in journalism at Columbia. And he, he didn't have as much time to sit around and write about watches. So, he so asked, I guess he knew that it was kind of a business to begin with. He treated it like a business because he's only and, a year into it. Yeah, initially he was doing it at his desk during the financial crisis at UBS. And it was a Tumblr at the very beginning. And then he created the blog, which was kind of like one interesting vintage watch per day um, that he saw some for sale somewhere, eBay or some small dealer. The The <laughs> watch market online looked a lot different oh, nine sure. years ago and yeah. ten years ago than today. It was a couple small websites that looked like they were designed in 1997 and like that was about it (laughs) and uh yeah uh very little info available but um i was sort of sending him leads of interesting things i saw saw online on ebay etc and then he said hey would you want to write about this oh that's cool so you were just sending him I sent like leads like for watches three. that were for sale. Yeah, and I was like, hey, this is cool. So and you I, weren't sending him articles that you wrote? No. He just initially. asked you to start doing it? Yeah, he's like, would you want to write this up? This was back in, I think, May 2010. And I said, sure. And then the rest was history. Had you ever, like, written before? Like, not, not for, for a job necessarily, no. but, like, were you ever into, like, creative writing or anything like that growing up? Or um, No, not really beyond That's so school. funny. Yeah, so that was... And I was really excited to be a part of it, obviously. It was it was really neat to see it grow and see some of these stories break beyond the small website. Oh, and yeah, then for it sure. Just took off. And then a couple years later, we started this, what initially was called What's Selling Where. It turned into Bring a Loop, kind of inspired by Bring a Trailer. And let's every Friday put a group of watches together that are cool, that are for sale online, which is sort of hearkening back to the origin of the site. And 
you know, you'd get your eBay pieces, your auction house pieces, some really tiny estate auction house pieces, and then interesting watches with dealers. Uh, and that took off, and people were, like, looking forward to that every Friday. That's awesome. Um, and through that writing, I also got to know people at auction houses and um, got to know John Reardon at Christie's, who uh, eventually hired me in 2015 to join Christie's. And you were at Christie's for how long? Just over two years, almost two and a half years. So what was um, that experience like? Were you like vetting watches that were coming to auction or yeah. writing so, descriptions or both? Or um, I guess if I had to nail it down into three words, it's source, research, and sell. So got you've got to source the watches for the auctions or for private sales, which is kind of where you act as a dealer and just broker a watch. And then you've got to research it. You've got to order the extracts from the companies. You've got to write about it in the catalog online, make sure it's all correct. And then you try, you have to sell it when the sale comes around. It's a bit like a fashion show or something like it's time and the stuff, the watches either perform or they don't. Uh, and then you start all over again that night after the auction, <laughs> trying to source for the next auction. Right. Yeah. Um, it's a bit like, it's like flipping houses, but a lot, lot faster. Yeah. And it's also, I remember reading about urban Meyer, the coach of the Gators in Ohio state later, who was like right after they won the national title, he was sitting down in the locker room calling recruits. Like the next to day. Try that evening, like within like an hour of the game, and everyone else is celebrating, and he's like, "Hey, no <laughs> kidding, you should come play for us." <laughs> well, and I guess in a, a sense, bit. it's genius because yeah. it's yeah, I mean, he's just using, won. Everyone's yeah. watching it, and you're important enough that he'd call. But it's sort of like that with the auctions. Like the Christie's has an auction here tonight in New York, and you know, I would be following up with people even sometimes right after the auction or the next morning and saying, Hey, you should consign your watch. Like we did really well with this one. Sure. So, so yeah, you were at Christie's for two years. Mm -hmm. Um, basically your business now, Eric, when vintage is effectively doing those three things, right? Yep. Um, yeah. so that's obviously a natural progression. Um, yep. what was that departure like and how did you begin your business that way then? It was a very smooth departure, um, which was very nice because you never know exactly how that's going to go when exactly. you're putting in notice. Um, yeah, especially with like a non-compete agreement. There's a non-compete period, yeah. et cetera. Was there one? Yeah, there was. Oh, wow. Um, they were very positive about it, particularly because they were happy I was not going to a competitive auction house <laughs> right. like Sotheby's, Phillips, whatever, other smaller houses. Um, so that was... Uh, it was very positive and it's, I think it's been beneficial to them because I still help them with things. Sure. Obviously we are very close with the people that work there and, uh, they also rely on me for expertise on certain watches and things and to help them sell things. So it's, sure. a, it's a very positive relationship. So that relationship's still there. That's great. Yeah. So what was sort of the easiest thing about starting Eric Wynn vintage? Um, the hard thing is you're putting your money out there to buy stuff and you know, you've got to know what you're doing, I guess. So yeah. just the, it takes a while to really get comfortable in doing that where you're like, okay, I'll buy it at this. Like you, you own it at that. You need yeah. to be, <laughs> you need to be comfortable owning it at that. And a lot of 
people that want to become vintage dealers, they, you've got to know really what the market is and how deep a market is for something and what you can charge for something because you can't really overcharge people too much. Information's too readily accessible and people communicate between each other and they'll talk and uh, then you're the guy who really overcharged someone, <laughs> which happens and you don't want that. Um, and you can't just, it's not like you can go around and buy like a $200,000 watch for $5,000 either. That doesn't happen really. I know it happened in the old days in the eighties and nineties before there was internet and it's still to a certain extent happens very rarely, but there was, for instance, a platinum paddock, Philippe 2526 that heritage sold that someone had inherited and she gave it to her husband. It was her father's watch. He walked into a pawn shop in Texas and sold it for $5,000. Oh my that gosh. Pawn shop owner flipped it to another pawn shop owner for 50,000. And then he put it at uh, heritage and it sold for over 600,000. Um, how long ago was that? Couple, that was, that took place last, the watch sold last year. Oh my uh, gosh. In 2018. That's insane. So, um, that doesn't really happen. So it's not <laughs> like a, <laughs> it's not like you can just, uh, become a dealer and suddenly get rich. That's not how that works either. So you have to work hard. You have to know the market, know your customers. Um, I'm a sort of known as a condition guy, I guess, very original watches, watches that are unpolished if possible, all original parts. So I don't do well if I buy a watch that's in poor condition and then try to sell it because my clients don't want it. And, you know, I've bought a few watches because I thought they were cheap enough to sell or whatever. And it just ends up being a headache and you have to dump it at auction or you take a loss or something. So, you know, that's uh, part of the learning curve as well. Learning who your clients are and um, learning what they want to. So is there anything that's kind of along the lines of easy for you? Like what's the easy part? Um, Could we covered the hard part? I, I guess <laughs> the investment, I, yeah, yeah. the investments like the yeah. big, you know, yeah. The big and swing. Like, yeah. Thinking about what you're buying, but the easy part, I guess, is looking at the watches and evaluating condition just because that's second nature. And I can look over a watch in a few seconds many times at least see the exterior condition and then have to look at the movement and things but um but even that's somewhat of a learning curve i would that takes anticipate a lot of time also there's a lot more sophisticated restoration today in terms of relooming watches relooming hands um there's a lot more fake parts today fake bezels etc that continually get better so it's um sort of an arms race between like the experts and those that are trying to fool the experts on some of these things. Um, so that's, you've got to kind of always stay ahead and be reading the forums and talking to people. Instagram has a lot of information now too, and is a lot different than where collecting was six or seven years ago, uh, when it was all just forum based. Um, so yeah, that's, that's easy and then certain watches seem to be pretty easy to sell for me like vintage speedmasters are something that i do a lot with and really like and it's 
one of the best some of these watches I've, a lot of them are under ten thousand of course uh and those are if you get a really nice one they go quickly um so so watches like that and rolex submariners are i do a lot with as well um and they're still you know really nice ones under twenty thousand are pretty easy to sell oh that's great yeah but even still, like under twenty grand, it's I mean, it's no nothing to sneeze at, you yeah, know, exactly. price wise. No, exactly. Um, um, so, what's kind of like? Uh, so, in retail, we often talk about like customer retention and like how you manage that, you know, yeah. follow up and all that. What is what does like customer retention look like for you and kind of your job and your company? I'm very client focused, so it's about finding the right clients that want to work you know, with me and that are buying things. Um, of course you get the one-off person who wants a vintage Speedmaster, and then they're done with vintage watches or a vintage sub. And then you kind of never see them again, which is fine. Um, but then I have some clients that have bought 40 or 50 watches from me in sort of the year and a half I've been doing this. That's um, insane. So those are great clients that you want to stay close with and see what they're thinking about and then they might trade some watches back for you to sell etc um so you also need to be aware of not hurting them on price because you could very well get the watch back to sell yeah sure um, a lot of i think a lot of people don't realize that many dealers when you want to sell a watch will just say oh i don't want it back um and people get shocked by that even very good clients uh, whereas I always try to help them sell it at least, or I take it back. It's some high percentage of what they paid or sometimes more than what they paid if the market has moved, which it, it is moving a lot on certain models. So that is a wake up call for some people about who they're dealing with when you've bought uh, 200, you purchased a $200,000 watch and then you say, you know, I don't really like it anymore. Would you buy this back? And they say no. And then at any price, no. <laughs> then what are you going to do with it? Um, so it's, yeah, I find that surprising, but people do it. So uh, when you're doing deals with clients and stuff, like what percentage of your time is spent like interfacing? Like, do you meet most of your clients face to face or is it a lot I, of it done over the phone or I've meet a lot of clients face to face at least once. So you can build a rapport with them. Um, I'm up here in New York quite frequently, probably once a month on average, um, to meet people or see what, you know, see watches that I'm trying to buy, et cetera. Um, so travel is a big part of the job. Um, but I think the personal relationship's important. Also, I do try to talk to people on the phone rather than just text all the time. Um, it's just my style. I prefer to talk to people. Um, so I spend hours on the phone per day talking to different clients about watches. Um, and I love talking about watches, fortunately. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's that, no, that's, that's <laughs> a good collision. Get old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so obviously like we're here face to face and you're because of liability, you probably don't carry inventory around with you. So Not like, much, yeah. let's say you meet somebody new and you guys gravitate towards one another and it yeah. seems like there's a good rapport and yeah, how, what would be like the next step? Like if I, you would just pull up your website or like, how does that interaction go from like moving forward in the sales process? It could be meeting someone at a restaurant and showing them a watch. It could be meeting them someplace like an auction house and showing them something. Um, 
but yeah, you've got to then look at watches. So there's a lot of uh, meetings in restaurants, I guess, <laughs> but it's good. And once you have those relationships, like I would imagine people start putting feelers out there like, hey, Eric, can you find me X, exactly. Y, or Z? Yeah, that's all. Well, you always got to be looking toward the next thing. So like I, I know my top clients, what they're looking for. And then you just try to go out and secure it, whether it's buying at auction or buying, telling them about it and taking a commission and sort of evaluating it and buying it for them at auction or going to a collector, you know, who has the watch and asking him if they would s consider selling it and at what price. Um, so, yeah, and that's some of these things to find in good condition are very rare. So there have been watches I've been looking for for years for clients, even from my Christie's days and still keeping my eyes open because either the ones we've seen aren't the right condition or the right price or a number of things, but more condition based than anything. It's they would buy the watch if they saw it, what they wanted. Um, so when you're taking into consideration like trends, for example, mm -hmm. you know, like the 5711 Patek yeah. right now yeah. is like impossible to get. Everybody wants one, of course, yep. you know, and then it becomes a function of like wanting what you can't have. Yes. But the way also like trends work, especially when considering like the tipping point, right? Yeah. So there's the early adopter and then it becomes a trend and then it floods or whatever. Yeah. Are you, when you start spotting trends, is it ahead of the, I would imagine it's ahead of the curve. Like when you start yeah. receiving a cut, like when do you know something's about to become high demand? You, yeah. When you start getting a few requests from people about something, Hey, I'm thinking about this. And then you suddenly get a few other calls about that. What are uh, some of those watches recently that have happened like that? Right now, vintage Speedmasters are extremely hot. Um, I think part of that might be the 50th anniversary of this summer, but somehow that's just caught on as well. There's a big article in the New York Times about the Speedmaster today, which is cool. Oh, so that I came out today? That, yeah, I'm quoted in it. I'm, so I think it'll oh, that's awesome. add fuel to the fire. Yeah. Um, I wish I could have predicted the Nautilus fever. No one I know really thought that would happen. And to give an example, we had back in 2016, December auction at Christie's, two Tiffany 5711s, one white dial, one blue dial. They both sold around 40,000 all in. And um, even on Chrono 24, there was one, I think, double sealed that sold for about 45,000, um, or that was listed for that price. Um, no one was going crazy about that watch and it was, you know, retail was still like 25,000 at the time. So <laughs> everyone's like, that's very strong. You know, you gain 50% when you get a Tiffany. Well, one just sold this week at Sotheby's for 150,000. That was double sealed. So, uh, it's absolute madness with those. Um, but it weren't, the Nautilus fever wasn't there in 2016, even though it was the 40th anniversary of the watch. Right, right. <laughs> it's just sort of popped up since. That's really interesting. Yeah, I'm, I, I always wonder, like, what drives that, you know? I mean, supply yeah. and demand is yeah. the only thing I can come up with. Yeah, is like when the supply dries up. Celebrities. Um, yeah. Suddenly, a lot of Rolex guys who like the watch with the bracelet, with oyster bracelets, were saying, oh, this would be cool to have. Uh, this is the only paddock I want, et cetera. And then suddenly everyone wanted one. <laughs> it sort of happened very quickly. 
Well, one thing I think is cool about your website is that you have like a, a wide range of price points. Yeah, I try to. I mean, it's because that's my personal taste. I'll buy watches at five hundred dollars. I mean, I'm not going to great expense like marketing them, but to I acquire like them. them, yeah. Them. <laughs> yeah. I've got a selection of lower priced watches at Rowing Blazers and that are on their website, which is cool. Um, of course, that's here in Manhattan. Here in, in yeah, Soho. exactly. Yeah, so that's fun. And then I deal with six-figure watches as well. Yeah, sure. So, so how often do you find, or do you ever, because these trends can, you know, they can take off like a rocket, right? Yeah. So do you ever have to, I, I know it'd be unfair, but like, have you ever pulled something from your website and then relisted it higher? Like, I mean, how, how often do you have to I manipulate the prices yeah. based on demand? I haven't really, um, but I've definitely see things rise that I, I, I bought an Ultraman last oh, year man. in January. I love that watch. And it was the original people were beginning to talk about it. I had an opportunity to get a really nice one. Um, and I bought it for sixteen thousand, which was very fair. Um, it was you said sixteen thousand, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh wow, that That's was ahead of the kind curve. of strong for the price at the time. And then the, you know, six months later is the introduction of the Speedy Tuesday too, which is the Ultraman. It's during that time, Waco of Revolution Magazine and the Rake went Ultraman crazy, and he bought three or four vintage ones, which I would have never predicted and then told everyone that's the watch to have by december phillips had sold one here in new york that previously sold in the hodinky shop for fourteen thousand five hundred or something for seventy five thousand oh <laughs> so, my god so the watch went up 500 percent basically between january and december that's um, insane but i was glad i was keeping it just as a personal watch because um you know, I would have never predicted that. Certainly, five hundred percent return in one year. <laughs> Not. <laughs> yeah, that's absurd. I, yeah. I mean, I can't even comprehend five hundred percent at this moment. Yeah. Like, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Standard H. Standard-H.com is where you can join our email list, where I send out. Uh, offers periodically to those of you listening right now 20% off of your total purchase if you use the code podcast also this episode is brought to you by passion fine jewelry located in Solana Beach California primarily dealing with independent watches uh, Tim and Jana Jackson are incredibly knowledgeable about the industry as well as offer fine jewelry as the name would imply and they also employ a goldsmith on hand in case you're looking to do anything custom. Uh, visit passionfinejewelry.com as well as Tim's blog independentintime.com where you can check out anything and everything all in conjunction with horology. Now back to my conversation with Eric. Um, well your mom's in real estate my sister or, or your yeah. sister excuse yeah, yeah. me um it does the watch world work like real estate are there ever things like pocket listings where like there nobody really knows you have them but you're like hey hey i actually just got this yesterday yeah it's yours yeah i mean i don't put a lot of stuff on my website i'll be doing more but um I'm sure that's for security reasons too security but also <laughs> just the watches kind of if they're hanging out there feel a little burned um 
because they're sitting there for a while. So I definitely don't do that with six-figure watches. It's just if someone's looking for something, I kind of know people that could be interested in it or maybe they are directed my way, etc. So that's part of it. And um, I'm just very sort of relationship-oriented with clients. Um, I'm not like a Chrono24 where you just list everything and then pick what you want. Given that you sell these things, but also collect them, like how do you balance that? <laughs> it's very hard. It's, it's, uh, it's always like every watch I kind of want to keep when I <laughs> get it initially, but it's, you just have to be responsible. I have two kids, right? And <laughs> yeah. A wife and you can't just <laughs> put everything into watches. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's fun. I, I, I just, I'm a, I like condition and originality and I like design. So I, my collection sort of has interesting watches from every brand, just sort of how it is, but I've got a galley I really love. That's from the 1940s. I've got a Breitling Navitimer that I bought to resell from the widow, the original owner, but I ended up just loving it and I've kept that. Uh, Omega Speedmaster Ultraman that I loved. Um, Rolex Submariner, which for me is one of the quintessential watches. The first luxury watch I really wanted. Um, Rolex GMT, etc. Some dress What GMT watches. do you have? I have a Blueberry GMT. Okay. Um, which I, I really think is cool from the late 1970s, 77, 78. Nice. Um, and then... Lots of little dress watches. I'm a big Vulcane Cricket fan, uh, which I like because of the presidential history. Okay. So I have a number of those very cool variations. Um, and, yeah, I've got a, probably about 25 or 30 personal watches. I was just uh, about to ask, like, do you limit yourself by number? Is there any a one-in, one-out philosophy? or? Not, I don't, yeah, don't, don't do the one-in, one-out. Um <laughs> Uh, it's, it's tough to subscribe to design. Yeah. And I think there's a Matt Jacobson talking watches where he's saying I have seven watches and I have to sell one. If I keep one, uh, you know, I don't think that's personally that may make sense with really big 50,000 plus or a hundred thousand dollar plus watches. But sure. For me, you can get a really cool watches for $200, $500. Uh, I just bought a really cool Fortis for $500 that I love on bracelet. Like, there's so many cool watches out there. Yeah. These things don't take much space either. So you can kind of just put it in the drawer and store it and look at it and enjoy it. And these things will appreciate often at a percentage rate far beyond like a $20,000 plus watch. Um, you could buy a $500 watch and it's worth $2,000 in three years. Um, and I've seen it happen many times. So, uh, I, I just, I love watches. It's about design more than about price. So that's my philosophy as well. Yeah, for sure. What, uh, so what are you wearing today? Uh, this is a Rolex three, five, two, five, um, that I bought recently. It's, it's special because it has a retailer signature, from Nairobi, Kenya. Um, so it was a company called Dobby's there. But I I really love these sort of pre-Daytona Rolex chronographs. And this one 
it looks it looks clean. It's very very, very clean. Yeah. The polished bezel. Though. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. So That's did you beautiful. did you have it polished? No. So no. okay. Yep. And what what year is that watch? Uh, I think it's 1949. That's amazing. We'll have to post a photo of that on uh, the Instagram when we launch, but uh, that's gorgeous. Um, Well, you mentioned your wife and kids. Is is your wife into watches? She is, uh, but more through me. She's supportive and likes wearing watches that I tell her she can wear. (laughs) And uh, she's also helping a lot with the photography. Oh, cool. um, She's getting into that and it's been hugely helpful. Oh, nice. Yeah. you know, I guess we sort of honed in on the mechanics. So someone says, hey, I'm looking for a Hoyer Monaco. Um, I'll say I happen to have one in stock. We have all the photos sort of very high resolution that she took in a Dropbox, and I can just share the link with them. And oh, they can perfect. quickly scroll through. They don't have to download. They can download if they want. And uh, that's sort of the mechanics of it, which we've honed in on has really made the speed much quicker for selling because otherwise you know someone might want to you can really tell with high resolution photos what the condition is so you don't need to ship it to them and then they say oh it's too scratched up or something for me um well that's great yeah well you travel so much for work um how do you kind of balance being a father, for example, like with traveling so much and being away from your kids? I'm sure it's tough, right? It's tough. That's the toughest part of the job. It's actually less travel than with Christie's. So that's been positive. Oh, that is um, good. Yeah. And with the addition of Dropbox, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that makes yes, things yeah, a little easier. Too. Yeah, it does. Um, early on when I became a dealer, I was just trying to go meet as many people as I could. Um, get relationships that's meeting with clients meeting with people where you can buy watches from um, and so forth but now the travel is sort of a lot of the travels around the auction seasons in Geneva and New York um, and then just trying to go get watches if you need to get a watch um, and going to meet clients if they need to see a watch particularly something that's in the six figure range. I'm not flying to, to sell a date just to someone. <laughs> so, um, and you know, I've had very good experience with FedEx. So just ship the watch to someone once they pay and insured. Have, have no issues. Yeah. Exactly. So what's yeah. the farthest you've ever traveled for a watch? Uh, I've traveled overseas to go look at watches, um, Europe. Um, I haven't had to go to Asia to get a watch, but I, did go to Bali for a big collector gathering in December. Yeah, I was going to say, I remember gathering. those photos. That was yeah. six months ago? Yeah, in December. God, I, that that so seems that like so much more recent for yeah, some reason. Yeah. This yeah, year is flying by. It is. Yeah, so that was really fantastic experience. There were about 50 collectors there from around the world and a few dealers. Um, so it was a lot of fun. Did you get to enjoy Bali much or was it mostly we, meetings? We did. Yeah, they built in nice activities for us. So it was neat. It was that sanctioned by somebody specifically or is it There's a group called the Vintage Rolex Asylum there uh in Indonesia that is about 30 guys and they hosted this uh, for 5 years in a row uh, and it kind of grew each year with more people coming in from overseas 
So it was, they organized it. It was a ton of work and they did a great job. That's but, awesome. Um, they had really three full days of activities yeah. and great dinners. Everything was fun. Just right. sitting, talking about watches with people. That's cool. And looking at watches that people brought. So do you have uh, like a favorite city to go to, be it vacation or otherwise? I've really love new york city so well that's good because you're here all the time yeah, <laughs> yeah I love it's a good new thing york. you like coming here yeah and la as well so those are two favorite spots to visit yeah uh, really good clients in both um any tips for new york for people to come to new york anything like must do's that you would recommend the restaurant is or whatever I don't <laughs> yeah i like saxon and prole a lot which is a restaurant that's the head chef is a client and friend of mine, Brad Farmery, who's been on Talking Watches. Um, so that's a great spot. Um, otherwise, I, I end up eating at a place called Brasserie Ruhlman a lot, which is right by Christie's. I s started eating there when I was at Christie's with clients and things. And they have a great chicken pie art, which is sort of a flattened out chicken kind of salad. It's one of my favorite lunches here. <laughs> and then my favorite... Breakfast place is at the St. Regis Hotel. Yeah, so that's good. Where do you like to vacation? Um, do you take vacations? <laughs> <laughs> Not as many as we probably should, but um, we, we end up going to Wisconsin and Missouri, where my wife's from and her family, um, to, to spend time with family there. And then other little trips. I mean, sometimes we make work trips into family trips. So all going out to Southern California together, Newport Beach, LA, et cetera. Um, some, you know, coming up here to New York together sometimes. So we, we try to do things together if we can. Well, you, um, are a big golf fanatic. <laughs> yes. Yep. What got you into golf in the first place? Obviously you said you worked at a golf course like in high school and stuff, but my parents tried to get me into it when I was really young and I didn't like it. I didn't find it exciting enough. I was more into basketball, football, things like it that. It wasn't, wasn't high impact <laughs> yes, for you. <laughs> yeah. So then I began to get interested again in, um, like middle school range and what we called junior high school in Wisconsin. And then I just began playing a lot and joined the, the golf team in junior high and then in high school. So oh, cool. So really you played for your crazy. high school team? I did, yeah. Nice. And I was became a Scotty Cameron fanatic, which we talked about um, around the time I was 15. I bought my first Scotty Cameron and inspired by David Duvall. Of course, those Tiger years also really got me into a Tiger winning the Masters in 1997, I think, was the first golf tournament I watched and Tiger's first professional go golf tournament was the Greater Milwaukee Open which was not far from me in 1996 so I vividly remember opening the newspaper and seeing the him at his press conference there announcing he was becoming pro did you go to the tournament I didn't go to that tournament no but I've been to the Greater Milwaukee Open and the he, he I think inspired a lot of people my age to get into golf for sure. Oh, hundred yeah. percent. Especially with like the athleticism <laughs> yeah. aspect of Exciting it. Exciting and, and working yeah. out and lifting yeah. weights and 
and his changing perf- the game. His performance in 1997 was so dominant. He was, was one by tw- I think 12, 12 strokes. strokes. Yeah. yeah, 17 under. Yeah, the next best was five under, and there was hardly anyone else under par. Yeah, so it was. It was and he's so young at the time too. Yeah, like, it, was it was just crazy. crazy. Yeah. So you have a few of those putters, I guess, right? Because Scotty Cameron is is highly collectible, to say yeah. the least. I what else do you have? I've gotten inspired by Brad Faxon. I love Brad Faxon. So you're into like the pro models. I like that. And I've got a, a 009 that I bought um, last year to kind of my first circle tea putter. So I was very excited that's, about that. That's my favorite head. Yeah. It's the and, 009. Uh, I love Jordan Spieth. So I like that sort of connection as well. What is is yours carbon? No, it's it's stainless. Steel. I always like stainless. I guess because of Tiger Woods as well. But is it uh, black or is it silver? Just a silver stainless. Three hundred forty grams, which I think is right for me. Thirty, thirty-four, <laughs> thirty-five, thirty-five. Yeah, for me, thirty-five. Yeah, yeah, sure. So <laughs> yeah, I guess you're. How tall are you? You're pretty tall. Uh, six one. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. Um, how often are you getting out and playing? The best part of being a dad, <laughs> there's many good parts, I should say, but. Uh, my son Charlie and I play golf a lot, and we live in Florida, so we can do it pretty frequently. And how old's Charlie? Uh, he's five years old. He's got a sweet swing. Yeah, he does. And we've been watching golf since he was one, and maybe even before he was turned one. <laughs> so, so he just sits on the couch and watches it? We would it watch it, and then he got into it. Then I got him his first putter, and we were putting in the living room and had a mat. Then he began making some putts. <laughs> well, he was still one. Then we'd go to the range. <laughs> and at first, I would swing with him, and he'd hit the ball. You'd stand behind him? Stand behind him. We'd have all four of our hands on the club together and hit. And then he wanted to hit it himself, and then it just took off. So he uh, he's five. He can hit the ball as far as 100 yards. No kidding. Very accurate. Um, and he loves the game. <laughs> so so he's he's asking you to play probably yeah and we um we play this par three course which is really amazing in palm beach called the palm beach par three designed by raymond floyd that's 18 holes so we do all 18 and a lot of the holes are from the tees like 120 yards so even beyond where he could hit it but maybe for him nine or ten are reachable and he hit seven greens when we played together recently. Oh, my gosh. Insane. So we had birdie putts, seven birdie putts on this thing. Oh my, <laughs> at the age of five. Yeah, it's crazy. That's awesome. That's so much He's fun. He's had one birdie so far in his life. Which really? Is great. Yeah. We're still working on the putting. He's He gets a little wild, but we're <laughs> working on it. He's probably trying to kill it. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's phenomenal. So what what kind of pieces of advice would you give others like if they were say not that you want to saturate your own market yeah. but like with other vintage dealers like if someone thought they had the chops to in order to go out on business and do it themselves like what what would you advise them to do Yeah a lot of people have been I feel like there's a new vintage dealer every week <laughs> someone starting some company with that's got to make you feel like a million bucks <laughs> <laughs> it's okay i'm very confident in my own situation yeah but, for sure but people come up with names and it's usually one name and then and and then another name so it's something funny but um <laughs> the um i guess i would 
tell people that there's really a code of ethics about how you should act both as a dealer and also when you're selling to other people. And a lot of people come in and they just sort of violate all kinds of things. They agree to buy a watch from another dealer and then they back out or they, mm. um, they do all kinds of crazy things. So, um, is that like kind of the one pet peeve is that it's backing very, out of a you, transaction? That's a big deal. And then, um, the, you know, you're, you're not being transparent with your customers and they're buying really bad watches at very high prices. Yeah. I'd imagine that people, takes place. People come in and just think like, I'm going to just sell this as high as possible rather than selling it at a responsible price. And then of course, then when the customer wants to sell it, they don't, you know, they don't buy it back or don't help them sell it, et cetera. Man, that's such a bummer. Yeah. Um, what is some of maybe some, some good value for your money that collectors like could expand their collection into these days that where maybe it is ahead of the curve or yeah. is it just the philosophy of just buy what you like? Buy what you like for sure. There's guys I know that are really time only focused that want dress watches and they wear a suit every day and tie. And there's guys that just want watches on bracelets, sport watches. As a general category, I feel vintage dive watches are undervalued from some of these lesser known brands. Um, everyone's so chronograph focused these days that there are so many amazing dive watches out there from from sort of more unknown brands to even brands like Omega where their dive watches seem sort of undervalued if they're really nice uh, with all the Speedmaster mania. So that's a general category. Vintage time only watches like from Omega and others also seem very undervalued if they're really nice. Rolex as well. They have a whole line of precision watches, some in steel, some in gold that for the quality they can be purchased maybe as low as $4,000. They're amazing watches and extremely high quality and rare. Some of these references, you'll only see a few basically on the internet. So probably maybe 20 made or something by Rolex. And obviously everyone's focused on subs, GMTs, Daytonas that they don't really appreciate how nice these other watches are. So I do think there's a lot of room for people to find things that are undervalued. There's an auction house here in New York called Fortuna that I just was in one of their auctions yesterday and they had an incredible group of very special undervalued rare watches to some starting at $200. Wow. Um, and you know, these are great things. You just have to be able to kind of look at them and hold them and appreciate them. They had a, Certina diver that was on a gay frere bracelet, which are really expensive, very nice bracelets. And I think it sold for under $1,500, extremely beautiful dial, sort of art deco numbers. To me, that quality of that watch should be 5,000 plus. Um, but you know, people aren't focused on it. So, so yeah. how does one get in to the, to in, in knowing like where to go? Like, so for, Fortuna, right? They had yep. the auction yesterday. Yep. Me myself had no clue. Yeah. So how do I find out about those auctions? How do I enter those auctions? Are they all online or are they in person sometimes no, that was only? No, in person. Um, 
do they do online in addition? Yeah, though? Was, you could bid online. So it's both. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Is that how all auctions work yeah. typically? Is there both? Unless it's some small auction house in the middle of nowhere, they might not have an online. But there are new platforms like Invaluable Live Auctioneers, BidSquare that all these little auction houses can use to make sure their catalogs are broadcast to the whole world, um, which is both a blessing and a curse in some sense because even like a little auction house you can find i was bidding in a tiny auction house here in new york that had a vintage speedmaster from the widow the original owner well it turned out it was a 2998-1 with a tropical dial but it was on live auction years so then everyone saw it and the bidding started at seventy thousand. and wow. went from there um so that's um that's the blessing and the curse it's a blessing to them because otherwise that watch if no one knew about it it could have been three or five thousand dollars i was talking to someone that back in 2011 at a small auction house maybe in arkansas that wasn't really online bought a tropical registered 6262 daytona for eleven thousand uh hammer that's easily worth maybe close to six figures and uh you know he did very well but it was just because he happened to know the auction house and then they he told them if you ever get watches let me know and then they got this watch and told him and it was not online oh man someone else saw it as well and then but it didn't clearly have the pockets to go far enough right (laughs) right Would you just recommend Googling auction houses or watch auctions and then sign up? Is there like a newsletter that each house sends out to say, hey, look, like yeah. this is coming up? Or? And I will caution it by saying it's the Wild West as well because you need to really evaluate condition reports if they do have condition reports. And even then, many times they're incorrect. Um, so it's like going on to eBay as well. I wrote a sort of guide about buying on eBay, but that can only get you so far that guides on Hodinkee. Um, but you have to know what you're looking at. You can't just trust them completely, which is where an ex, you know, like a dealer comes in like myself and hopefully we'll buy the right pieces and then sell them at an appropriate markup but have really done the vetting and stand behind the watch. The auction houses don't really stand behind the watch. You buy it and it's yours. And the condition reports are just an opinion. It's stated as such. And, you know, opinions can be wrong. Yeah, of course. So do they do their diligence too in in getting extracts and things like that the way you do? Or is that not always the case? Not always the case. And for those who don't know, like, what is an extract, for example? It's a piece of paper. They are all a little different between different companies. But um, you send in to Patek Philippe, for instance, a photo of the front of the watch, movement and inside case back, um, and maybe back of the watch. And then they check their registers, which are the handwritten books they have dating back to the company's founding with every watch in it, and check that the movement number corresponds with the case number tells what movements inside make sure that matches what they're seeing and maybe details about the dial um and so it's more or less a certificate of authenticity except not quite they would they don't call it that specifically because they haven't inspected it it's just photos so that's it's an extract about those numbers 
and then some companies do a certificate of authenticity, but they need to see the watch in person. That so makes sense. Like Audemars Piguet has both. You can get an extract, and then if you send it there, you can pay more and get a certificate where it's inspected. Um, and then Vacheron does a similar thing with certificates and extracts. Paddock just does extract from the archives. Uh, Omega does an extract from the archives, and sort of the big crazy thing about this hobby is that Rolex doesn't either. Yeah, they don't do it, right? So, And what are those fees like? Like, what are you looking at? Um, I think Paddock is about $150. Oh, okay. Um, and Longines had been free for many years. Now there's a small fee. I can't remember what it is. Maybe 50 just because people were taking advantage of it. Um, so, yeah, it's usually up to $200 per piece of paper but it's important i think to prove that everything's original and then if you can't get one of those for your watch then it's worth a lot less for certain brands um you also get into crazy things like the omega uh records some of them were damaged by water so there's a range of numbers for 2998s which is the second reference of Speedmaster where they don't really have records because they alpha were... Alpha hands? Yeah, alpha yep. hands, yep. So those you cannot often get extracts for because of the water-damaged records. <laughs> yeah, when you said... when Like, immediately when you said that Paddock has, like, their handwritten ones, immediately I was like, those better be in a fireproof safe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Like, and if it's waterproof, yeah. obviously great. Yeah, yeah but, Exactly. I was like, oh my gosh, that's Longine all Longine actually digitized all their records, which is very good because it allows them to quickly check a serial just by typing it in. And then, th then it, the page shows up digitally. They showed us that in May when I was with them. And they showed us what the page looks like. And then they can read the page on their computer. And they can be anywhere in the world and see what it says in the book. Yeah. So Universal Genève Vintage, is they that obtainable anymore or have we is that reached peak so they have because they've been climbing high they've been climbing they everyone's focused on the 1960s sport models like the eric clapton tri-compacts and the nina rent compacts and those models but there are so many great tri-compacts models from the 40s early 50s there are so many great time only models that you can get as low as two or three hundred dollars on oh eBay. really yeah um but it doesn't have a name or a nickname and it's not a chronograph um so people aren't looking at it there's a very rare dive watch called the pole router sub which fortuna just sold for well under ten thousand dollars that's very special um and the pole router is a really great watch, uh, supposedly designed by Genta when he was 23 years old. Oh, wow. Great watch that a lot more people are sort of focusing on. So those watches used to be two or three hundred dollars on eBay. Some of them are as high as two or three thousand dollars now or a bit more. Um, but that's still like much more accessible than many other watches. Gerald Genta, obviously, and, being yeah. the, the Nautilus and the Royal Oak exactly. designer. One of the most important watch designers of the 20th century. Yeah, and at 23, that's pretty remarkable. Yes, so that's it insane. was. And that watch has, the early ones have these sort of twisted liar lugs, which are what the Speedmaster Professional has. Okay, yep. In a larger case. Um, and that was 
you know, uh, about a decade before the Speedmaster Professional came out. Um, so you see all these influences for later watches from those watches. And I think when you get to know the history of watches and the brands, you begin to see more connections between companies and designs and the way things were happening in Switzerland in the watch industry at that time, which I really like. So are, now, are you into cars at all? I what really do you drive around Florida? I uh, drive a Porsche Cayenne, uh, which I really like. It's a Turbo S. But, oh, um, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, a big boy. Yeah, but I w- I've been very interested in vintage Porsche, of course. Uh, I feel like vintage Porsche is, Porsche is sort of like vintage Rolex. Like, it's very interesting to people of our generation. Very utilitarian, tool-focused. We're not into, like, the vintage Duesenbergs or Rolls-Royce from the 1930s, things like that as much. Um, So I would love to get a vintage 911. I think, as many people have said, like Ben Clymer as well, it's sort of the submariner of the car world. (laughs) It's like you're just your sort of entry point and then go from there. Then you go into more exotic stuff like Lancia and other companies. But Those uh, seem to be hot right now. <laughs> yes. Alfa yeah. Romeo's. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Picked up steam, I'd say, in the big last time. year. Yeah, big time. Um, yeah, it's really interesting um, how the Italians are, are coming up through the ranks <laughs> like that. Because, yeah. I mean, there's blips on the radar of American muscle that get really high, and then it kind of cools down. And then, you know, I'm, I'm assuming the vintage watch market would be similar. But, yeah, I think that it's just interesting because for our parents' generation – it was cars like the Pontiac GTO and Corvettes and things. But when we were growing up, it was the Lamborghini, the 80s Lamborghini the on the wall. Exactly. Yeah. And Ferraris and uh, Porsche rally Miami cars. Vice. You exactly. Know, the, the white Testarossa. And exactly. And Magnum PI and his oh, yeah. Ferrari. Yeah. So we're such like a generation of people loving these Italian sports cars or European sports cars. And we didn't have the same association with American muscle cars that our parents did. Um, I, I too would love a vintage 911, <laughs> but I think you and I are behind the curve now. Yes, yeah, it's exactly. just gotten way out of hand. Yeah, and that's it's sort of a similar feeling, I think, like you have. Because with It's like, where do you find the next thing yeah, for me? So I, I feel the same way with the car world, like, where do I go to find a cool vintage car that's not going to cost like a hundred thousand? <laughs> you know, all you got to do is just ask Jerry Seinfeld because <laughs> if he says he's into something, yeah, then then it's, change. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. it explodes. Yeah. Um, well, this has been fun, man. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. Um, it's great to see you again. Thank you. Here in New York, coincidentally, both yeah, times we've been awesome. able to hang out. Yeah, thanks so much, um, Wesley. Yeah, this is great. So the next time you're in L.A., hit me up. I will. And be I'll, there I'll make it up there and we can be awesome. uh, have a beverage or something. That's awesome. Okay, <laughs> Thank buddy. Thank you so much. Thanks. Okay, Eric. <laughs> Thank bye. You. Really want to thank Eric again for dedicating some of his time in New York to sit down with me to chat. I knew we had some things in common, but it seems like we uh, really had much more in common than I even thought given the uh, Porsche and golf talk. Um, Eric, thanks so much, man. Uh, Let's link up the next time you're in LA, as I said before. 
thank you guys again for listening. Really appreciate you guys supporting the podcast. Uh, of course, visit standard-h.com. Pick up a hat or a t-shirt, perhaps. Um, also, visit Clear Audio, C-L-E-E-R, audio.com to check out their line of headphones that I've been using. Uh, they're really fantastic. Uh, thank you, Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for uh, writing the music to the show. And we'll catch you next week. Thanks so much. <laughs>